Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. On Commons People this week, Brexit is back. I would say to my um, honourable friend that yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. So are the dreaded COVID briefings. You must not meet socially in groups of more than six. And if you do, you will be breaking the law. And what does it mean for Boris Johnson's wider agenda? We were elected on a mandate to deliver a levelling up, um, you know, an even playing field across the country. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hello Paul. We've got the Conservative MP for Warrington South, Andy Carter. Hello Arj. Hi Andy. And we've got Alan Menon, Director of the UK in a Changing Europe Think Tank. Hiya, how are you doing? Yeah, not bad, thanks. How are you? Busy week for you, I expect, Alan. Unexpectedly busy, yes. I was hoping yeah. to just sort of build up to the football season and then all this happened. <laughs> yes, we're all looking forward to Saturday, but... Um, Politics went all 2019 again this week. The Brexit exploded back into life during a crunch round of negotiations in London. First, Boris Johnson set a new October 15th deadline for the talks and said no deal could be a good outcome for the UK. And then the government was forced to admit it plans to break international law as part of attempts to go back on sections of the so-called oven-ready withdrawal agreement the Prime Minister negotiated last year. Let's just hear that extraordinary moment that Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis revealed the government's plans. Um, I would say to my um, honourable friend that yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. We are taking the power to disapply the EU law concept of direct effect required by Article 4 in a certain very tightly defined circumstances. And there are clear precedents for the UK and indeed other countries needing to consider their international obligations as circumstances change. And I would say to honourable members here, many of whom would have been in this House when we passed the Finance Act in 2013, which contains an example of treaty override. It contains provisions that expressly disapply international tax treaties to the extent that these conflict with the general anti-abuse rule. And I would say to my honourable friend, we are determined to ensure we are delivering on the uh, agreement we have in the protocol and our leading priority is to do that through the negotiations and through the joint committee work. The clauses that will be in the bill tomorrow are specifically there for should that fail, ensuring that we're able to deliver on our commitments to the people of Northern Ireland. Um, Anand, can I come to you first. Can you just explain in as basic terms as possible exactly what's going on with the withdrawal agreement and what it means for Brexit in a wider sense? Well, at its simplest, the withdrawal agreement is binding on us. It's been signed and it's been approved by both sides. But what the government said in its internal market bill is, if necessary, it's it's giving ministers the power, if necessary, to override parts of that agreement and to regulate, notwithstanding any agreement we have with the European Union. It's that that's causing the problem. We're not doing anything as yet. We're reserving the right to do something in future. But that in itself, as we've seen from the leaked uh, legal uh, opinion of the European Union today, is being interpreted 
in itself as a breach of our international obligations by giving ministers the right the EU was saying we're in breach of our obligations. Yeah, and Paul, why is Boris Johnson doing this? What's he up to at this at this key stage in the negotiations? Well, there's there's two schools of thought. One is is this just a negotiating tactic um, to sort of concentrate minds, should we say, in Brussels and say, look, we really mean business. If you if you don't really give us what we want, then here's our safety net. You know, we can just pull the plug completely on the whole thing. Do you remember when the whole row was uh, being discussed last year? Um, the government were looking at whether or not they'd have an, an and sort of eject to seek or eject to seek clause. Well, here it is, but it's after the fact rather than in the in the actual uh, withdrawal agreement. Now, number ten keeps saying that um, actually, you know, this is a last resort, but they need it because of ambiguities in the in the treaty, and they stress time and again. Look, there's always ambiguities in every international treaty. There's nothing new here. Um, there's every every treaty has some form of dispute mechanism, some form of arbitration. What's new about this? You don't always tie up all the loose ends before you sign an agreement and you leave things for, for, for a later date. And that that's the justification. But what's new is that the PM really does think that, he uses this phrase time and again, this extreme interpretations of the Northern Ireland Protocol, as he puts it, um, are what worry him. And I think that talking to some people in number 10, it's not a negotiating tactic. They really do mean it. Um, but at the same time, you, you, you've got to say that a lot of people in Whitehall think that actually a deal is closer than people think. And that actually, um, you know, if if... If the EU gives way on fish, Anand's favourite subject, then we will give way a bit on state aid and, you know, you get a deal. So let's see whether or not this is just a sabre rattling. Yeah, Anand, did you want to come in there? Yeah, just to say, I don't think it's a negotiating tactic because it makes absolutely no sense as a negotiating tactic. Because if you think about the standoff between us and the EU, effectively what's happening is the EU are saying, we want you to tie yourself to rules to make sure that you don't do certain things. And the British government's response is, we don't need to tie ourselves to rules. You can just trust us. So if that's the standoff, doing this is precisely a way that will make the EU trust us even less and make them insist even more on those binding rules. So as a negotiating tactic, I don't think it makes much sense at all. Um, Andy, what do you think about all this? Are you happy with the idea of breaching international law? What did you make of Brandon Lewis standing up in the Commons and, and saying that yesterday? I, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. You know, I, I've been involved in in business all of my life and came to politics in in December. And you know, when you when you're in business, you go through all kinds of negotiations for for deals and 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 to take things forward. And and you use all kinds of tactics to get the the outcomes that you want. Um, and I think you know we're seeing here. Um, a, a strong negotiation from number ten. Uh, they they know what they want to achieve. Uh, they're going out there to, uh, to to try and achieve that, and they're using every single tactic that they can possibly uh, possibly um, bring in. And I, you know, I think. Um, uh, you know, we, we sort of saw everybody jumping up and down and shouting that, you know, the UK are going to break international law. And, well, I think, you know, Paul summed it up really nicely. Um, you know, that, that's not what's happened. Uh, there is a bill that's been published. It'll be debated next week and we'll see where we go from there. Yeah. Are you worried simply about the message that it sends having a minister, a cabinet minister standing up in the Commons and saying, yes, we are going to break the law? Does, does it damage our economy, which is built a lot on, on following the rules and being respected around the world for following, following the rules? And does it damage us in terms of foreign policy as well, Andy, in terms of dealing with countries like China or Iran when we're trying to talk about 
you know, the international rules-based order and stuff. Are you concerned by that at all? He didn't quite say, yes, we are going to break the law. Um, you know, there's, there's a slight difference in, in, in what he actually said and what you've just said he said. Um, I, I think, you know, what, what it's clear is that there is a goal for Britain. We're, we've got a government that are putting um, the, the, the thought of, of this country, of the, of the United Kingdom, at the heart of its ambition, and it's working hard to try and achieve that. Yeah, Anand, uh, we've talked about state aid there, which is one of the big sticking points in the Brexit talks. And the government actually put something out on state aid yesterday, um, which was little noticed. Did you see that? And what did you make of that? Is that is that actually the government showing a bit of leg to the EU while, you know, under cover of this big row? Yeah, I mean, there were two things yesterday about state aid. There was the paper on the government paper on state aid, which I think the EU will say we'd like a little bit more detail, please. But it has been a sticking point to date that the EU has said, how can we negotiate if we don't know your, what your position is? And at least the government now seems to be defining that position. So that's got to be a good thing. The other thing on state aid that happened was in that same internal market bill, where, of course, the, the, the withdrawal agreement smuggled EU state aid law into our law through the back door via Northern Ireland. And what the government said in the internal market bill was, again, ministers have the right via regulation to override those provisions. So uh, there were two things on state aid, one of which might make the negotiation easier, the other which will probably make the negotiation more difficult. Yeah, it's interesting. At the end of the day, it does seem that Boris Johnson signed up to something here without realising the full implications. Is that fair, Paul? Well, number 10 were vehemently denying that yesterday, even though they said, look, this is a lot of this is to the fact we, we negotiated at pace this agreement. By at pace, they said, look, that means that there will be loose ends that have to be tied up. But I think um, from his point of view, uh, there's a, a wider danger, I think, amongst some Tory backbenchers, which is they're beginning to see that actually the small print really did mean that actually the European Court of Justice has the final say in a lot of this stuff. Um, and that's anathema to a lot of Brexiteers. Unfortunately, it's in there. It's in the withdrawal agreement. Now, I think that's one of the downsides of the PM really trying to make a big route of this because people will see other bits of the fine print and they think, actually, why did why did we even sign up to it? Um, so that's a political danger. But don't forget, at the end of the day, there's raw politics here. International treaties are not just about law. They're about politics. And we saw that with the agreement. You know, it was pushed over the line with a bit of politics between Boris Johnson and um, Leo Varadkar. It was politics that got it done. And ultimately, I hate to be crude about it, but some people in number 10 are saying, and this affects the Labour Party, this is really about whose side you're on. Are you on Brussels' side or are you on our side? And if we, if we need to break international law, a lot of Brexit voters will say, well, Sodom, you know, uh, Britain's got a right to do what it wants. And it's that crude calculation that actually gives them a bit of confidence politically. And for Keir Starmer, it's, you know, it's not, that's exactly why he sidestepped the issue this week. Yeah, Anand, I'll come to you in a sec. But Andy, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because you're in a, a Tory Labour marginal. What have you made of Keir Starmer's kind of keeping quiet on this issue? He doesn't want to get drawn into anything on Brexit, does he? I think it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, the, the the Brexit issue was so fundamental for Labour's problems in the blue wall uh, in, in, in the north of England. And, you know, you're right. He said absolutely nothing about this. And I think Paul's right. You know, we need to get on with this. We, we, we were elected as a government to deliver the Brexit promise that we made in December. And we need to get on and do that.
And, and I think, I, you know, the one, one thing I, I would say, I think, you know, when, when legislation is put through at pace and when that withdrawal agreement was, was signed, uh, there are quite often unintended consequences that come from uh, from those those legislations. And, and that's a, that's the thing that I think this internal market bill will uh, will be able to address. Do you, do you think Starmer's kind of silence on Brexit will work in seats like yours? Do you think the Leave voters in there will forget about the last couple of years when he advocated for a second referendum? Do you think do you think he can kind of neutralise that as an issue, especially the next election so far away? Um, yeah, I, you know, I mean, my seat is not a typical blue wall seat. Mine's a 50-50 Brexit seat. Uh, so, you know, it, it um, what happens in a lot of northern seats is not necessarily played out in Warrington South. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very mindful of that. There are a lot of people that, that in fact, uh, you know, um, if you look at what happened in the in the election, um, you know, more people voted Labour and Liberal Democrat, if if you see Labour as a Remain party, than, than voted for the Conservatives um, in, in, in their entirety. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult issue. Um, in, in, in many areas of the country. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that Labour need to get on board with this. Um, the electorate spoke really clearly and we need to move the country beyond this. If we're going to spend the next four years just going round and round in circles over, uh, you know, whether we're going to come in or out of Europe, it, it, that debate's finished. Let's just get on with it. Yeah, and Anand, uh, final word from you on Brexit. It's not going to be the final word on Brexit. <laughs> I've only. But for now... Paul made a really interesting point there about, I mean, it, it's very uncertain how the politics of this plays out, because if you think back to prorogation last year, a large number of those polled didn't like prorogation, but equally, a large number of those polled thought it showed that the prime minister was strong and determined. And so this will play out in very subtle ways. It might well be that people don't like the idea of the UK breaking uh, international law, but it might equally be that it makes a lot of people un believe that this is a prime minister who will do what it takes, and that's not necessarily a bad thing for the prime minister. I, I mean, just just to finish off on that, I don't think it will be anything like the politics of um, of, of that period previously. We've got an eighty seat majority now. The government is in a completely different place. Uh, you know, the the legislation that that is coming forward in terms of the uh, the, the internal market bill, it, there are some really really good pieces of, of legislation there, and you know, I, I think we will see this moving forward at, at pace. If you're missing your good coffee fix while working from home, now's the time to start your flexible plan from Packed Coffee, delivered straight to your door. Packed Coffee is 100% speciality grade coffee, roasted fresh for your order and ground just moments before it's shipped. You can select exactly how you want your coffee, when it's delivered to you and flexible plans allowing you to pause, cancel or change your plan anytime online. The free and fast delivery will mean you never have to miss a morning cup again with next day delivery if you order before 1pm. To try Pack Coffee, we've got a discount code for you to get your first bag from £1.95. Go to packedcoffee.com, that's P-A-C-T coffee.com. Create your flexible coffee plan, enter the code HUFF, that's H-U-F-F, at the checkout and get speciality coffee through your letterbox. Go to packedcoffee.com and create your coffee plan. The code is valid when you create a packed coffee plan for new customers only. Well, as well as the return of Brexit this week, we also saw the ominous revival of the Downing Street coronavirus briefing amid a dramatic spike in infections among under 30s. In response, Boris Johnson has introduced a new rule of six, banning any meetings of more than six people and introducing tougher enforcement, including new COVID marshals. The PM also went big on the so-called Operation Moonshot plan, suggesting things could return to normal 
with the introduction of mass daily saliva testing with near instant results. But government scientists Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance were less optimistic. Let's have a listen. Over autumn and winter, which is the period when all respiratory viruses uh, are, have an advantage because people crowd together, uh, more things are done in, in, indoors, amongst other reasons, um, is going to be difficult. So the period between now and spring is going to be difficult because this is a respiratory virus. Uh, I think in terms of the ex existing restrictions, people should see this as the next block of time. Uh, that may not last uh, for uh, many months, but it's very unlikely to be just over in two or three weeks. So I think that there's a block of time, and at that point, uh, we, we will collectively, as a nation, have to look again at where things are and work out what are the right things to do. Paul, so is the government making mistakes on coronavirus again? Have they failed to learn from uh, spring? Well, um, I think one of the big problems the PM's got is just his tone, which is how he sounds. You know, naturally, he's an optimist. So he, giving bad news is, is not doesn't come naturally to him. Um, and I think he just needs to get better at delivering bad news, to be honest, because then it'll, he'll have a bit more credibility when he does talk about the good news. Um, Test and Trace, for example, in PMQs this week, Keir Starmer asked some perfectly sensible questions about ordinary members of the public facing delays i'm sure in andy's seat it's the same a lot, a lot across the country people are ringing up and trying to get a test and not being able to get them now that's a you know it's not a prime minister's direct uh, responsibility but he's ultimately responsible for it so i thought he should have just said look yeah we'll hold our hands up we're having problems there are some lab problems i'm looking into it. i'm trying to get a grip of it that's a that's normal sort of way of dealing with things but the pm obviously sometimes just can't resist because he thinks Starmer is is sniping. And there is a danger for, for for Starmer here too. Just as on Brexit, he he knows he can't be seen to be the person who's just sort of captain hindsight. He knows he can't just be seen shouting from the sidelines. I think there's some research that Deborah Mattinson did in, in blue wall, red wall seats that showed most former Labour voters actually just want the government to do well. Uh, they wish the government well. Now, they have their own concerns about how it's going, but they wish them the best. And and all the time, whenever we discuss this, um, it, I think that's important for, for all politicians, particularly Labour, to take on board. Yeah, it's interesting that I was speaking to a, a Tory MP in a, in a red or blue wall seat yesterday who was saying exactly that, that this Captain Hindsight message um, really carries well and, and people are starting to see him as sniping from the sidelines. But anyway... Um, Andy, a lot of your colleagues are not happy about ongoing restrictions and especially a tightening of restrictions and the introduction of things like COVID marshals and, and you know, the slightly, the slightly authoritarian uh, move towards stronger enforcement of the rules. Where are you on this? Well, before I answer that, let, let me just talk about my experience of testing because I've, um, you know, I've got a twelve-year-old who went back to school last week, and as always happens when kids go back to school, you know, they arrive back within a week with snot dripping from you know their nose and uh, coughing, and and so school says they can't come back until they've had a test. So off we went at the weekend to get a test because uh, he got a persistent cough as well. Um, we went online. We found a test site about six miles away. Uh, we were there within a couple of hours. We had the results back in 24 hours. They were negative. Um, it was fantastic. Um, now, 
I'm not saying that that's the same experience that everyone's had, because I've had emails this week uh, from constituents uh, who've tried to book tests in Warrington, and the closest one available was Telford. Uh, you know, and 67 miles down the M6 is not an easy journey if you're, if you're coughing your head off and not feeling very well. So, you know, there are certainly issues around capacity, and I've raised it in, um, in the House this morning uh, in, in business questions that we've got, to, we've got to address this. I think you're right. You know, the optics of, of the testing um, uh, issues are actually, you know, that there is a huge huge amount of good things happening there. Um, I think it's about a quarter of a million tests a day now being uh, carried out. Um, but we've hit a spike because the schools have gone back. And we probably should just be clear about that. And I, I think actually, I think um, Matt Hancock was was hitting on that in his statement a little bit earlier this morning, uh, you know, saying that actually we, we have hit a little bit of a, a wall where we've, we've got children going back. There, there is some issues there. We've got to move some of the testing capacity around. And I think the other thing they need to do, and I, I think this is a problem for Public Health England, I think they need some more labs. You know, they can actually get more cars through the testing centres. Uh, that's not a problem. There's people there actually waiting. It's the labs where the, the capacity issue is. And, you know, we've, we've obviously got Public Health England to get more uh, capacity on to, to address that as well. Although it's not just, I mean, it's worth pointing out that Public Health England and the NHS would say that their own um, labs are doing phenomenally quick turnaround times. Yeah. It's actually a lot of the private labs that are, are lagging or have got a bottleneck problem. And it's quite interesting that that that's on to the whole wider issue of whether or not NHS test and trace should be called NHS test and trace. I know a lot of people in the NHS think it's undermining the brand of the NHS because it's effectively privately run a lot of it. Um, but that's a whole different issue. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head though, Paul, that a lot of, a lot, the, the vast majority of testing that's happening is really good. My own experience, I saw that. Um, it's really difficult to know, you know, who, who did the testing for you. Um, in, in that case, it clearly was a, a, a public lab because it came back really quickly. Um, but it's it's you know it, it's clear that we've got to get public and private partnership working together because in the public sector we haven't got enough testing capacity we don't have enough labs so we've got to have that happy medium of, of working with both and and and, if, and where we do have uh, bottlenecks we've got to address them. Coming back to your question about um, marshals, you know I'm I'm sure they've all got their sort of fluorescent jackets ready to go and you know they'll be parading around the streets. I had a, you know, I spent recess talking to um, cafes, restaurants in my constituency about their experience of reopening and how things were going. And some were doing it really well. Some weren't bothering quite so much. And the ones that were doing it really well are the ones actually that over time have, have stayed busy because you've seen people confident to keep going back there and know that it's a safe environment. And, and some of them did say to me, we could do with a bit more help out here just to make sure, particularly on a Friday and Saturday night, uh, we know the police haven't got time. You know, they're, they're off doing other things. Just somebody in a high-vis jacket saying, you know, just keep a bit apart. You know, please don't climb over the barrier. You know, please. They're the sort of things that I think actually will make a bit of a difference in, in town centres where people want to go out and enjoy themselves, but do it safely. Yeah. And, and Andy, as, as well, Boris Johnson was talking about um, this Operation Moonshot mass testing program plan um it, it does seem like a long shot especially if you listen to the government scientists and the reports that it could cost up to 100 billion pounds do you think this is the right way to go do, you know we need to sort out surely the testing here and now before we start talking about this sort of thing 
I think we've got to do both, to be honest. We've got to, yeah. we've got to get the immediate issues resolved and we've got to think about the future as well. I mean, um, you know, it's it's a combined effort of, of dealing with testing, getting vaccine programmes and treatment sorted. Um, I think if you go down one track and don't try and cover all the, the bases, you, at some point something is going to let you down. So, you know, I'm, I'm pleased that they're thinking about this. I mean, I was at Manchester Airport last week, met the, um, met the chief executive of Manchester Airport. And, you know, they are desperate for testing to get their business back up and operating. Operating. And, you know, we, we sort of think about, oh, oh, um, you know, Manchester Airport, OK, well, planes can't fly. Let's not have people going off at the moment. Uh, you know, in my constituency alone, three and a half thousand jobs are, uh, you know, driven by what happens at Manchester Airport. Um, they're, they're currently running at something like 17 percent of capacity on a, a sort of daily flights. That's a massive, massive problem. And they know if they can get more frequent, immediate testing in place, they can get that confidence back in and people will start using planes again. Yeah, the government said it's looking at um, introducing airport, well, not airport testing, but testing eight days after you come back uh, from holiday, for example, to replace quarantine. But they're not really biting on this idea of airport testing. They say it doesn't really work testing people as soon as they come back. Would you urge them to reconsider on that? Yeah, do I've spoken to the aviation minister this week and and said to him, you know, when I was there actually, I met the people that are doing all the trials at Heathrow and and Manchester, and you know, it's a saliva test. They're they're pretty clear. Look, this isn't this isn't the the thing that's going to solve everybody's problems, but it could cut uh, quarantine periods down significantly, um, and it's another weapon in our armory to try and tackle this this virus. So yeah, you know, I I do think we need to look much more closely at this. Cool. Well, Johnson is under pressure over both Brexit and coronavirus, but he now has to contend with a group of four. MPs who plan to make sure he fulfills his pledge to level up the most deprived areas of the country. Andy is part of the new Tory levelling up task force, which on Monday published research revealing earnings in seats the Conservatives won in 2019 are on average 5% lower than those in Labour held seats. Andy's colleague Joe Gideon, the MP for Stoke-on-Trent Central, helped launch the report on Monday. Let's just have a listen to her. We were elected on a mandate to deliver levelling up um, you know a, a, an even playing field across the country and we've, we've actually got to keep our promise uh, with the pandemic it's been a challenging few months but now we've got to plough ahead yes it's about infrastructure yes it's about you know trains and buses and and, and getting jobs and, and getting more um, business going but it's also about a, a social and cultural issues that, that have been um, here for decades Andy, why did you form this group? Is there a concern among you and colleagues that as coronavirus has hit, the government's job has become a bit of a rescue mission and and are you worried about the implications for levelling up? No, actually, this is about championing level up and leveling up and doing it at the same time as we recover from from the coronavirus pandemic. You know, some of the areas uh, that are most in need of leveling up have been hit the hardest, um, and I think we've got an opportunity uh, in, in in the recovery phase to really start to address some of those really crucial issues that that, um, that that some of the areas face. I mean, you know, one of the one of the real experiences I've seen through lockdown and, and talking to constituents in in Warrington is is the impact of not having a good super fast broadband uh, connection you know people that are having to work from home students that are having to to study from home um, and I you know we, we've got villages that are less than a mile outside of Warrington 
midway between Manchester and Liverpool, some of the most densely populated areas of the northwest. And you can't get a blooming signal on your on your broadband. And, and when you do, it's so difficult to actually send anything. And, you know, if you're trying to work from home, it's it's nigh on impossible. And, you know, I've, I've found myself occasionally um, having to go out in my car um, and download stuff on my phone connected up to my laptop so that I could get a better signal and make things happen. And, you know, that's the reality for a lot of people that don't live in London. Um, and we, we've got to we've got to attack that. And so, you know, leveling up is at a, a, a very basic level dealing with some of the things that some of our wealthier areas have already got and take for granted um, and, and I really do hope that the government takes it seriously in fact I know the government's taking it seriously uh, because you know since since I've been back since recess we've had two or three conversations about it with number 10 and they really are focused on on, on making sure that we deliver on this promise yeah is the money there though Andy now that's the thing um, we're going into a, a budget an autumn budget where all the talk coming out of the Treasury is about tax rises. There's a huge hole in the public finances left by things like the furlough scheme. Are you worried that the money isn't there to properly level up? Well, we, we've got to get our public finances in right over the medium to long term. Um, but at the same time, you know, the recovery phase uh, will, will continue and will require further support from, from Treasury. And, you know, I, I know Rishi is clear on that. I, you know, I saw Rishi earlier in the week and we had long conversation about how we make sure that the investment that we make over the coming months into that recovery period is able to support that levelling up agenda as well. Uh, Paul, Labour's done some analysis on the so-called red wall this week um, around this issue of levelling up. What did it say and what does it mean, do you think, for the government? Oh. It's a blue wall. Will you stop calling it a red wall? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, Labour did some research and they, they dug into the numbers and, uh, that of people that are on furlough. They, they had a, a data analysis and they found that actually in those blue wall seats that actually um, there were more than 650,000 jobs on furlough. That's a hell of a lot of jobs. Um, I don't know how much it, how many jobs in Andy's constituency there are on furlough. Do you know Andy offhand? Yeah, I, I don't know today, but at the peak, there was about 14,000. Yeah. I mean, so we're talking about really large numbers. And obviously, it's not the case that um, all those people will suddenly lose their jobs. Far from it. Um, but the, the, a large number of them feel like they're on sort of employment death row. There's no question as, as furloughs withdrawn. And I think it's going to be really interesting the next few months how that affects a lot of MPs like Andy or rather people in even more deprived seats up, up in the north uh, northeast and northwest um, a Warrington says quite an interesting one it's one of these classic bellwether seats that Andy's got and I always find it fascinating I, I remember chairing the uh, the Labour hustings in Warrington in the in the, the place where uh, I think the Stone Roses did a farewell gig or something like that and um, and it was so obvious right then that, that you had such a divided town it could swing either way, Labour or Tory. So I think Andy's probably got his finger on the pulse better than most MPs about what, what the way the public are, are, are going on this stuff. Um, and it'd be interesting to think what, hear what you th your feedback you're getting, Andy, from constituents who are worried about furlough being withdrawn. Yeah, I, I mean... Um... I'm actually hearing a lot of people saying they, they want to go back to work. They want to get they want to get on with things. And I also hear people saying, look, we can't leave this indefinitely. Um, you know, and, and that was a point that uh, you know, was made yesterday in, in an opposition day debate 
what is Labour's solution? Do you just leave people on furlough indefinitely? Do you go down the route of supporting certain sectors? And if you do that, how do you draw the boundary on where those sectors are? And, you know, I, I give you an example. Let's go back to, I'm talking about Manchester Airport. If, if we say, okay, aviation, we know there's a problem there. Let's do something to support people that work in the aviation sector. So aircrew, yeah, we'll let those stay on furlough. And engineers that look after them, okay, yeah, they can. Um, what about the people that make the in-flight meals, the caterers? What about people that sell suitcases in shops? Now, how far down the line do you go? Um, and it's the supply chain that's the really interesting one. I mean, I've got we've got a lot of businesses in in Warrington South that support larger organisations in Manchester and Liverpool. You know, I've got a lot of ad agencies, for example. And you know, they were talking to me uh, about the investment that the government has made into the um, the the, the um, hospitality sector, and they've seen that trickle through because suddenly, when we made an investment into uh, into supporting uh, pubs and restaurants. And, and we did Rishi's Dishes, um, that that whole sector came to life again. You know, the, the people that were collecting the bins and emptying the, the bottle banks suddenly came back to life again. And that's why actually, rather than just leaving people on furlough, I think we need a more targeted approach to those sectors where we know we've got a problem to help them reopen safely. That's why I'm advocating testing rather than just sticking loads of money into, into aviation uh, to, to try and help them get back to some form of normality. And Andrew wanted to come in. Yeah, just to say that, I mean, the other thing to add to that is there is a view amongst many economists. Andy Haldane came out with it. The Bank of England came out with it the other day. I think our own Jonathan Portes has written about it, saying that, you know, the the pandemic is going to lead to a restructuring of the economy. And that that restructuring might be more painful if we keep furlough going for too long and therefore delay it. And it might be better, actually, to get a sense of what that restructuring looks like and to be able to adapt to it quickly rather than keeping going with this rather false sense of security uh, longer than we need to. Yeah, I, I thought I, that I, was interesting, actually, because uh, Andy Haldane, and as soon as he said those words, I thought there's no way a politician could ever say those words because he yeah. basically he sounded exactly like Norman Lamont. Uh, it's unemployment's a price worth paying. Get the and, uh, now. You know, um, I don't know what you think about that, Andy. Uh, a politician could never utter those words. The reality is, um, you know, look at our high streets. They're, they are changing and, uh, you know, the way that we've shopped previously isn't probably going to be the way that we've shopped, that we will shop in the future. We've driven so much more online. Um, if we just, if, if our high streets just think they can stay the way that they were, well, we're, we're all missing something there, aren't we? I mean, I, I, look at, I look at Warrington Town Centre and, you know, we've lost Marks and Spencer. We've lost British Home Stores. Um, we've got Debenhams still there, but, you know, Debenhams is in a perilous state. Um, I want us to, we've got to, we've got to transform our town centre. We're probably not going to be able to do that with retail jobs. We've got to do it with something else. And we've got to go through that, that thinking phase and getting that right. And, you know, I, I, I do think we're going to see a structural shift in the economy uh, that, that is going to be very painful for a period of time. Um, but that's where, you know, giving that support to, to other sectors, uh, you, you know, and, and driving uh, incentives like the hospitality incentive is, is really important. Uh, doesn't this drive then from the government to get people back in the office essentially to save Pret kind of jar a bit? It, it doesn't seem to fit in with the realities that we're talking about here, that maybe we aren't going to have a load of people going into offices and city centres and it is a structural change that we need to actually get on board with rather than trying to hold off. 
I don't, I don't think it's going to happen quite as quickly for most of the offices. I think I think there are some structural changes where our habits have changed dramatically. But actually, I think the, the sort of, you know, the, the base of people working, you know, if if you run a business, you've got a lease on an office for 20 years, that lease is still there for 20 years, and you're probably still going to want, want to operate something from it. But you might be thinking about whether you're going to renew one if, you, if you've only got a lease for, for a couple of years. I, I accept that. But, you know, there, there's a there are certain areas of the economy that I think we're going to see that shift a little bit quicker. Yeah, interesting. Anand, uh, the government's digging in on state aid in the Brexit talks, presumably partly because it wants to spend some money on the levelling up agenda um, and spend some money in the north. Um, but will will that help the levelling up agenda? What do you think the overall impact of Brexit will be, assuming the government get their way on state aid? Let's just assume that for a sec. Well, I mean, first thing is, is don't underestimate the power of principle. I mean, for some people, this is just about having the right to do certain things. And we can decide down the line what we do. But for some people, this is a matter of democratic principle rather than of practice per se. But yeah, if you're serious about a levelling up agenda, having the state's checkbook behind you is obviously going to help a lot. I mean, we'll only know in four years time, looking back, whether there were things the government did that would have been illegal had we stayed within the remit of the EU's rules. And, you know, that's an open question. We can come back to it. But I think, yeah, there are certainly ways you can think of in which the government can deploy its resources to helping uh, with the levelling up agenda. The one thing I would say, though, is that not only does it seem like the COVID economic impact is going to disproportionately hit those poorer parts of the UK, but most modelling of the impact of Brexit comes up with the same conclusion. So, Added to the inequalities we already have, we might have those exacerbated by both COVID and Brexit. So the task is going to be harder than it was before by a significant margin. And I think the big question there is whether or not the the PM can somehow finesse that and whether or not he can say, well, actually, no, it's we might be doing badly, but it's basically because of COVID. It's not because we're doing an independent national policy and we're outside the EU. And he might be able to fudge the figures. He might be able to also to say, look, yeah, poor areas, blue wall seats uh, have suffered. Uh, but that's not because of Brexit. No, that's because, mm. you know, that's because EU uh, they're being, you know, and that's because of world conditions. And, you know, stick with me. And that that calculation will be really interesting in the next few years. As will Starmer's line, therefore. And how yeah. he chooses to play that. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I think we, you know, at the end of the day, we we went into the 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 COVID period with a fundamentally strong economy. The the economy was performing incredibly well. Um, I think we're going to see some. Uh, you know, surprising levels of bounce back over the coming months. Um, you know, we we have had a really deep period where things have looked pretty pretty difficult for us. But actually, I, I think that that re- uh, that recovery is going to start to 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 shape up, and possibly shape up in a way that's different to what people expected, and certainly different to the way other European countries are are going to recover. You know, our, our economy is different. And, you know, it, it's one of the things I see, and, and it frustrates me greatly. We're, we're compared to all kinds of other economies, um, often economies that are nothing like. Like our economy, um, and and I think I do think we're going to see some uh, some bounce back, and um, you know that that will will certainly um, even even that itself will help the recovery further. That that confidence, that period of confidence, will will help greatly. Yeah, well, let's all hope so. But time for us to move on to the quiz. Yay! Uh, and fo- following the news that Diane Abbott turned down an offer to appear on Strictly Come Dancing, this week's quiz is all about politicians and reality TV. Oh, oh God! Um, so, uh, Andy, you're new to the quiz. Basically, the only just shout the answer if you know it. That's all you need to know. Um, so, question number one: 
Which South Korean K-pop mega hit did Ed Balls infamously dance to on Strictly Come Dancing? Gangnam. Gangnam style. Yes, well, yes. well done, Paul. Paul was there first, I think. Sorry. Fastest finger on the buzzer. Yeah. That, is a, that, is, that is an online lag. <laughs> <laughs> you need super fast broadband. You need to level up your... your uh, <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. It's, it's rough in Oxford. <laughs> 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 Question number two: Which Tory MP was suspended from the party for appearing oh, on Iris? Yes, die? well done, Andy. God's sake! Exactly. I'm good on Tory MPs. There we go. I'm all right on yeah. those. <laughs> yeah, it was current Health Minister Nadine Dorries. She was she was the first to be evicted from the series uh, after being buried alive and eating an ostrich anus, uh, and she was then later forced to apologise for failing to declare her fee for appearing on the show to the parliamentary authorities. All right, look, I'm saying George Galloway for the next one. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. It's not, I, might, I might have to dock you a point for predicting, <laughs> trying to predict it. Yeah. Um, but it's one all between Paul and Andy, so all to play for on the final question. Uh, this is kind of an obscure one. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn once appeared on Gogglebox, where he shared his famous recipe for coddled eggs and criticised the cooking of a famous TV chef. But who was the chef? Oh, my Jay God. Oliver. No. Was it Gordon Ramsay? Go through them all. No. Uh, Let's just keep going. We could be here for a week. Nigella Lawson. <laughs> yes, well done, Alan. It was oh, Nigella Lawson. Of course, it was the daughter of former Tory, Tory Chancellor Nigel Lawson. Yeah, um, she was using a tea strainer to separate the whites from eggs, uh, which Corbyn described as ridiculous, and asked, "What the hell do you use a tea strainer for?" Um, well, so there it, you go. It's a it's a three way draw in the quiz. Well everyone, everyone's a winner or a loser depending on how you look at it. <laughs> um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels. And please be sure to leave a review. Please also check out Running Mate, our fantastic podcast on the U.S. elections, which is aimed at Brits. And get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with the government's testing czar, the health minister, Lord Bethel, reacting to the news that young people were behind a surge in coronavirus. My lords, I used to organise raves. I used to love raves. But I implore implore all those who organise raves to stop because you are creating a massive public health disaster. Fines have been put in place. We will come after you. But please look into your conscience. Stop the raves protect lives. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.